So welcome Bashar and thank you for taking your time to visit us today and getting involved with our new storytelling venture. Well, thank you for inviting me. This podcast series leverages the beauty and richness of culture, diversity and highlights the many stories that make up Western Sydney. We want to break through the stereotypes of what it means to be Australian and celebrate the strengths and uniqueness of our vibrant, thriving community. This is Same Same Different. This is Western Sydney. Share your journey. Tell your story. Speak your mind. Find your voice. So I know you were born in Iraq. Can you talk me through your childhood? What were you like as a child? My childhood, the very early childhood was very happy. I lived within a loving family and uh, I was born after five daughters. So I was very special, you know. <laughs> and then I had my brother who stuffed it up. Oh. I used to be by myself, you know, and then uh, we had two together, so we shared their love. And it didn't last for too long because, unfortunately, I am from the generation of war. So back in my country, the war started, and that particular time was um, very fearful for us as children. And also we started losing family members who they get killed or, you know, affected by the, the wars. But in general, uh, yeah, what can we do? That's... That's our life. That sounds really tough. How did that impact you emotionally? To be honest, sometimes the struggle can create positive motives in people. Although these motives maybe are not very natural or desirable, we always wish that the motives can come naturally in a smooth way. But sometimes when we face the struggle, we're going to have to come up with a second plan to save ourselves or to produce better to make our families proud of us, or at least they don't feel sad if something happened to us, especially for us. The young youth uh, back in Iraq, most of us used to try to avoid going to the war because in the war is either you're gonna have to kill others or you get killed. And both outcomes are very sadful. So we tried to avoid that. That's why I focused a lot on my education. So I thought to myself, if I become a high educationally performer, that might make me avoiding going to the war, and then I can serve my country in a civil way by doing something else. Thank you for sharing that. So where do you draw your inspirations for study or passion for what you do? You touched already on this, but how did you come to do what you do? To be honest, I was born in an intellectual family. My sisters, all of them are graduates, and... They are really value reading and exploring in science and arts and literacy and everything back then. They used to be my inspiration. And I admit that my sisters, five of them, contributed a lot in making me loving to educate myself and became a lifelong learner. Oh, okay. And how did you decide to study construction management like you did? This is a good question because although I loved learning a lot, but I didn't love the structured education. Mm. I wished if I could have a freedom to learn whatever I wanted to learn. But in reality, that back in Iraq, if you want to become a high performer, there are two options only, and the rest will be, ah, you know, not 100%. The two options are either you become a doctor, which is the medical field, or an engineer. Yeah. But um, since my childhood, I loved arts. 
but I couldn't practice it because of some cultural stuff and even the society, unfortunately, didn't value the arts back in my country a lot, although they were wonderful artists, so they tried to make huge changes within the society and I still admire them, musicians, actors and others, but I couldn't practice it. So I had to pick engineering because it's closer yeah. to the drawings and the artistic point of view. So I, I've chosen to become a civil engineer and I went to University of Technology to do my Bachelor of Building and Construction Management. But through my study, I just realized that I have management skills. I used to get very high marks in management as well. So after graduation, I faced some horrible experience in my employment and discrimination. So I had to pick another field of study. So I did my master's in construction management. Yeah. And how did that work out for you? Were you able to find employment through your master's? Okay, the problem is my employment after my bachelor degree, I didn't leave it because I didn't like it or I had to, I wanted to seek different avenue to make me be happy, but there was discrimination out of the workplace. And that was the reason that made me feel I am really excluded from my country, that I loved it. And I stayed there no matter what happened. I tried to give all what I can. But uh, the reality is they ended up my uh, employment for one reason, because I have relatives who reside overseas. Oh, wow. And that caused a very, very negative, deep impact in, in, within my soul. Because why? That's not my fault. You know, people decided to leave the country, they went there, why I'm paying for, if the, if the country considered this a mistake, why I'm paying for it? I am loyal to my country, I love my country, and I was raised up there, and I never did anything against anything in, in my country. However, things happen for a reason, probably. So I did my master's to get away from going back to the military service, but I enjoyed it because the motive wasn't right, I keep repeating this, but because I was ranked very high at the end of it. And I learned a lot from that particular study, which developed my management skills. So what made you want to leave? You just talked about being loyal to your country and loving it. How then did you decide, oh, it's time for me to leave and start a new life? The moment that I heard the project manager when he called me with another colleague of mine telling us that uh, our employment was terminated and we asked for the reason, he said, I honestly, I can't say more than they said it's only for security reasons. And I felt that my country considered me a threat. Why? And we struggled for six months to go and chase the security departments to find out the real reason because we want to know why. Yeah. And at the end, the answer simply was because you have relatives outside Iraq. So they have excluded us. They actually, it's sort of somebody withdrew your citizenship. That moment, I felt that I don't belong to there anymore. But because I loved Iraq a lot and I loved the culture of Mesopotamia, guess what? I took it with me and I left. <laughs> and when did you leave and where did you go? I left Iraq in 1996 and I went to Jordan, mm -hmm. which was difficult at the beginning, but later with the help of one of my professors that they used to teach me at university, I found a job in engineering and also I applied to migrate to Australia as a former refugee because I wasn't able to go to Iraq. And then I came to Australia in 1998. Did you already have family here? Or? No, I had nobody. I had only my wife. 
and she was a permanent resident. So we started our little family here. So I see that you also continued your studies here in Australia. Yeah. What did you end up studying here? The struggle when I came to Australia was when I applied to 40 or more than 40 engineering companies when I came to the country, there was no company who interviewed me. Why do you think that was? Some of them sent me letters. They said, uh, we're after local experience. Some of them were very kind and nice, say I was overqualified. <laughs> and some of them I had to call and ask them, can I work for free, please? Just try me for two months. You might find some skills that you will regret your decision. Oh, sorry, we don't have available positions. So it was big, tough two years that I spent doing minor jobs here and there to to make a living for the small family that we established in this country. But I did not regret coming to Australia. I was psychologically prepared that I have to step back a few steps because my education did not give me pride. It gave me more knowledge. So I wasn't feeling bad when I did very minor jobs. And in some stage, I was carrying rocks in Mosman doing landscaping like any other laborer, and I'm proud of that. Sorry, I shouldn't say proud because it's a pride. <laughs> I said it's good experience for me to to live the tough life because when you live tough conditions, you're practically building solid foundation for yourself. And then after the two years of struggle, I was checking the system around me and checking what is the how is the market going and the jobs market and i found out that the real estate industry is very nicely structured in australia different than our country there was no structured system for real estate agents so i decided to do business management and work in the real estate industry on the basis that instead of building the houses let's sell them you know that's a good idea and i was using my knowledge for renovations because to advise the people when you purchase this property, if you do this and that, if you take this partition off, you do, you will create totally different property in that if one day you want to sell it, it will increase the value quickly by doing that. And it worked. Of course, with very, very, became very popular within a few years. But in 2006, when I settled financially, and I have what I need, I asked myself a question, am I really a salesperson? Am I going to continue this? Working in the real estate industry, you get into people's houses. And then some of them, when they trust you enough, they will share some of their private life with you. And I became exposed to the real struggle of, of some families who are from refugee and, and emerging communities, backgrounds, you know, it's just like uh, really tough conditions. And there was a call deep inside my heart that I want to work more on the grassroots level to help to service those families in better and more, more effective way. So the decision that I made is to leave the real estate industry slowly, slowly, but go back to university. And this time by choice to study what I want to study. I want to live this experience of enjoying my study. Of course, leaving the academic field for a while was a bit of a struggle, but I managed to complete my postgraduate diploma in adult education because I wanted to become a trainer and facilitator to work with refugees and run workshops for them to help them to settle in this country. And after finishing that, I managed to find a job with the Integrated Humanitarian Settlement Strategy. And then I became case coordinator, which I was um, 
coordinating cases for people who newly arrived, the newly arrived families, and provide them with settlement services for one year. That made me even more exposed to this struggle that this country feels that, okay, help them with their basic settlement needs, and after one year, that's it, they don't need any coordination, they will be fine. No, a new phase of their life will start. If no one guide them through that phase, you know what's gonna happen? They will isolate themselves. They will segregate and live in the small communities because there is the language barrier, there is stereotype, and there is other issues surrounding them that makes them feel they are foreigners. So we don't belong here, but we have to come here. Then I said, what am I gonna do? My university offered a master degree as a continuation for the postgraduate diploma, and then I took that opportunity. And as soon as I finished in 2011, I moved to the Department of Education, working in the community liaison field to help newly arrived families to understand the educational system and employment pathways and future careers for their children, and even for themselves. And that was really rewarding decision for myself because I could see the changes and people's perceptions towards the educational system in Australia. And we were even able to communicate between parents and school to modify things and change things. And all the way, I was trying to find a more creative way on how to help people to resettle and fight the community exclusion factor and the post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. And I realized because I love arts and music and I was always believing in this fine method and its effect on the body and I tried it on myself. Every time I used to be depressed or be angry, I used to go and play on my guitar, my keyboard, feel much better. I thought, how about using arts for social change? And then I started to create community development projects in 2012 by creating choirs and ensembles and community groups that we can get them all together through music, through songs. And it worked absolutely perfectly. Then within two years, in 2014, I decided that yes, I will invest in this initiative. And I opened the Arts and Community Development Center in Fairfield. And it's one of the main areas of Western Sydney. People used to walk next to the building where our office is. You say, well, what do they sell upstairs there? What's that? What's Arts and Community Development? But now, after five years, we are very well known that we play a crucial part of the main festivals that happen, how we celebrate multiculturalism, how we respect diversity. We became the voice of refugees in Fairfield and beyond. And the level of engagement is increasing day after day. And I have many groups now that we run through the office, which is the Choir of Love, the Peacemakers Ensemble, the Mesopotamian Ensemble, and others. And we created a very, very successful partnerships with other organizations that supported us, including STARTS and MRC, SSI, and Multicultural New South Wales, Department of Justice. We did functions for nearly most of the community service providers in our area. And I'm so happy to see my community flourishing in this field. And when I say my community, I say Fairfield community and Liverpool community and the surrounding areas because those people rely on us, that we have an established network to carry their voices and get it to reach the higher level of the hierarchy to get more support to let the people know that those people can be productive, but if only they have a chance. 
who's going to give them the chance if we don't do it? Yeah. And so these choirs that you mentioned, do they only cater to specific ethnic groups? Thank you for this question, because I, I had to be realistic when I started. So I don't want to lose the span of control and become too big. Then I might lose the concept. So it was learning process at the beginning. So when we started the Choir of Love, we targeted the Assyrian, the Chaldean, the Syriac minorities in Iraq only. But the Peacemakers Ensemble is a multi-faith tackling more people from the Mesopotamia area. The Mesopotamian Ensemble targets only the high professional musicians and singers if they wanted to join because it can be performing on a very high quality artistic mm. side. And the other ensembles we created this year is the global one. So now we have seven members from different countries. So step by step, we want to open up to the broader Australian society. However, we don't want to lose the connection with the grassroots and our own communities because they're relying on us, as I said, to keep remembering them in our community development projects because the migration is continuing and there will be always people in need to be engaged in a creative activity to get them out of the isolation. And one of the most important projects that I cherish is learning English through songs that was funded by SSI and we did it in conjunction with MRC and other supporting organizations. We used songs to teach English language. The idea came when I had some people from Fairfield area from Liverpool calling me. And they used to tell me that the traditional or the standard teaching methods with all my respect, but I mean, in adult education, you're going to have to go a little bit out of the circle, especially with people who they are full of trauma. Yeah. You know, they're traumatized. They had a bad experiences. The memory is full. If you sit with them and teach them, okay, let's start now studying the grammars. You know, this is verb. You think they'll remember. They won't. But when you mention real life scenarios and you keep repeating it, that's when it's going to be stuck in their mind. But also that if you do not add some nice environment, engaging environment, won't work 100% or I mean on a high level. So what's better than music to be used as an enhancing factor? So we picked three songs that they are relating to the concept of the project. Uh, well, the first one was We Are One But We Are Many. The second one was about hope, which is Paul McCartney is Let It Be, and then the Australian National Anthem. And we focused on using the words in real-life scenarios. Mm -hmm. And we kept on practicing, learning the song, how to sing it, at the same time learning how to use the words in different scenarios. And we keep questioning each other, and they do uh, role plays and all these things. And there was one successful story about a man his family told him, why are you going to learn English? You're 68. What are you going to use it for? The shops are just around the corner and the shop owner speaks your own language. So why would you bother? But he used to be a drummer when he was young. He said, no, it's got to do with the music. I'm going for the music sake and see how it goes. And when we interviewed him, he showed his marks to his family. Hey, look, I got 83%. <laughs> so he was so proud. He said, look, you told me not to go, but I managed to get 83%. And he insisted to do the interview in English. <sighs> and that makes us happy. It's their country now. We want them to learn English. It's our language now. Although we're going to have the accent forever. I mean, especially the people who are not born here. But it doesn't matter as far as we can communicate with others. That project sounds really good to inspire people to do something, give them 
hope because I know a lot of people who migrate here sometimes feel like they have nothing to do, they have no purpose in life. But projects like these really do give them a purpose and a chance at life again, I feel. So thank you for starting that. Yeah, absolutely, you're absolutely right, yeah. Do you think uh, like maybe in future are you going to maybe franchise it and open up more offices across Sydney or...? I would love to promote any initiative that created positive change. I don't want to think about it from the business side. I don't want to say franchise or branches or stuff like that. But I was promoting and I encourage every adult education provider to consider using songs in teaching languages. It's working. And I'm pretty sure with the pedagogy for children, it will work. And with andragogy for adults, it will work as well. Because I tried it and this project designed it as a pilot project. I was clear with the funders that we're going to try and see how we go. And it worked. And I can confidently say, yes, use songs to teach adult songs when possible. So what does peace and love look like in Western Sydney too? You said you mentioned there's a choir of love. Does that have any connection? Definitely. You mentioned the two words that I rely on my life to live happily with all the struggles. Love. Who doesn't need love? We all need it. Although the meaning of the word got really interrupted through the time, but unconditional love is when you give without expecting anything in return. When you work for the community and when you see smiles on sad faces, believe me, it's so rewarding, so rewarding, more than any financial or materialistic um, rewards or benefits that you can get. Peace is as important as love. But without love, you can't have peace. Love has to be there. Love is to care about others, to treat them the way that you want them to treat you. Then when that happens, there will be peace automatically. Within the peace environment, the peaceful environment, that's when the creativity starts. And then we should always remember, we should start this within ourselves. If we have love towards others, if we have peaceful soul within us, then the creativity will start within us individually. Then we can promote it and try to create creative communities. So we've covered your connection to music, but I've also know that you write and that you write for the Panorama Arabic newspaper. Are there specific things you write about? Yes, for sure. See, arts is not only music. It's not only theatrical performances. Arts include everything, anything creative. Writing was one of the most important tools that I tried to use prior to my community development projects to pass on positive thoughts to the community. So I had a column that's for me through Panorama, which is I consider Panorama as my home because it represents our community in a really, in a really nice way and comprehensive way. And I used to write about social issues and some community issues. At the beginning, I started to write about some real estate issues as well because that was my field. But later, I moved to the social issues and we were always promoting positivity and mutual respect and stuff like that to encourage our people to fit within the Australian society by using the Arabic language. I love the Arabic language. It's very creative. 
if people study Arabic language, they'll find it's as if you are drawing and you are saying poetry all the time if you know how to use it properly. It's so creative, it's so meaningful, uh, and it's very complicated at the same time. And guess what? Unfortunately, the generations are not using the proper original Arabic language. Although they were born there, and they have maybe studied in Arabic, but not many that I have seen. They know how to put the right words in the right places. And sometimes I realize that this is, this is what's causing the conflict. We have to be careful of what we say. Some words that can have effect can hurt you more than even physical, you know, physical harming, because they can cause massive injury to your, to your psychological well-being. So we need always to mind what we say, but I believe in the power of the words. And I believe that if you want to pass a message, if you can word it nicely to your community, it might reach out and it might create some change as well. So writing is one of my fields that I would love to continue working on them and within. So how do you think we can, in Fairfield and Liverpool communities, allow young people to better their writing, their Arabic writing or speaking? There's always a chance for collaboration between uh, organizations and community um, services or even the community organizations themselves. They can start applying for funding to maintain the original language, but I emphasize on a creative way. Just let's move out from the lecture style. Lecture style is not working anymore. Through my experience in, in Australia, honestly, everything is changing and life is so dynamic now. You can't put people in a, on a chair for two hours and lecture them. They have to have a role. They have to be a decision makers. They have to have ownership in the content of the delivery itself. That's why when you say, oh, do you have a structure for the lesson? I say, yes, I had. But guess what? Within 10 minutes, I changed it. I have to cater for the people needs around me. I just cannot have a pre-determined goals and come and force everybody to accept it. Even if I am a source of knowledge, we need to work together. So when you get the youth to come in and put on the table what they have from the language and you try to correct the grammatic mistakes in a very nice way using samples of songs or maybe using some poetry or some books that's been authored by the others. So you're telling them it's not me who forcing you to learn. Look, this is how it was created and that what does it mean? And if you change that letter to this one, it will mean like this. In a very friendly environment, in a workshop, Cafe style, if possible, with some background music, it will work. Youth will learn. They are very fast learners. I agree with that because I speak both Arabic and English. And for the longest time, I hated learning about Arabic because <laughs> I came here when I was 10 and it was still, you just sit down for hours on end and go through it. And it's quite a difficult language. And at times I just didn't want to go. I hated it. But I reckon that if I learned it in a more creative setting, I definitely would have loved it. Oh, beautiful. So you, so you know how to speak Arabic and you yes. maintain the language because yes. you speak English fluently. I thought you forgot about the Arabic language. No, I speak Arabic fluently. Great. How about I'll test you? Okay. Shunu <laughs> ismich? Ismi Sara. Okay, this is the Iraqi accent. Yeah. Now we're going to use the Lebanese one. Shu ismik? Ismi Sara. Same as beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> we'll use Egyptian accent. Oh, no. That's like the hardest one. <laughs> ismik e? Ismi Sara. <laughs> I'm going to speak the formal now. ما هو اسمك؟ اسمي سارة 
Wonderful. <laughs> was one answer for four questions yeah. in different dialects here. It's very Great. interesting. My parents watch a lot of Egyptian TV dramas. Yeah, and so at home, because I'd be there and I'd listen, my sisters don't understand it at all. But I have to think about it. Like I have to sit down and pay attention to what they're saying to be able to understand rather than if someone's just talking in an Iraqi dialect. Yes. But I just find it interesting because that's what they grew up with watching. So they understand it perfectly and they're just like laughing at it. And I don't know what's happening sometimes. <laughs> Wonderful. We are so lucky in Australia that the government and all the leading organizations are encouraging people to maintain their language plus learning English. Why? The language carries the culture carry the knowledge. Sometimes interpretations and translation can lose a few things of the original knowledge. And that's why we we miss out a lot of the original knowledge of everything that's related to our life. So it's good to maintain and keep. So we've covered your connection to music and writing, but you did mention that you liked art. So does that include drawing as well? Yes. Although I'm not a great drawer, but I love drawings, I love paintings, and I am an art therapist, by the way. I managed oh. to get a diploma in art therapy in Australia here, and I am a member of the International Institute of Complementary Therapists as an art therapist. Because drawings sometimes do not need to be perfect, but they are symbolic thoughts of people who does not want to share their experiences verbally. I use it in my school where I work for some challenging students. And guess what? I found an amazing talents within their thoughts through their drawings. And I use it with people who come to the office uh, seeking the art therapy side of it. And I use it with people with special needs as well because it's a great method to help the people to express their feelings through using colors or through putting some figures or some shapes that refer to a few things that happened in their life and help me to understand them and to address their needs. I agree with that. I actually have a friend who's studying to become an art therapist. She does art all the time and she kind of inspires me to do more art because sometimes through the stress of uni and work, you neglect all those hobbies. But I found that they actually help with the stress. Even just taking an hour away is really does wonders. Believe me, among all the knowledges that we have in our life, I believe art or arts are the valves that can air our feelings the compacted souls that we have that trapped within this life circumstances, responsibilities, sickness, issues, struggles. Arts are the valve that we can use to let it, to let it go, to express our feelings that sometimes we can't talk to others about it. If you have a chance to use any form of art for your own well-being, please do not hesitate. Explain to me more about how all that fits with social change and how we can channel that through creativity in innovation. Art always used to be powerful. I remember when I was very young, I also, I can't remember the names, I'm sorry, but I remember it was one of the South American countries that there was an artist who really does dramas and the government, uh, the people in authority used to get scared because every time he tackles a social issue within his drama, there will be a massive protest or something might happen. 
So sometimes when he wants to change some decisions or some trends that the government are going through but doesn't help the, the people of the country, he used to take his crew and just go and perform in front of the parliament house. The government straight away goes out and tell him, what do you want now? Let's change it because they know the power of arts can change people's perception. For example, even during the war, I remember sometimes they on TV they put songs that lift our spirits and say, oh, oh yeah, let's all defend our country using some powerful melodies. So growing up and considering that effect of these vibrations through music or the facial expressions of actors or other things or the power of a drawing made me feel that this is an important tool that could be utilized for social change. Through all my professional life, I did not leave music and arts. I was always practicing them on the side. But that was the deal with my father before me going to University of Iraq. I said, why are you against me when I play music? I want to go on a band, I don't want to study. He said, no, go to university, have a profession, use the arts as a hobby. Don't make it as a way of living because if you're going to think about money while you're practicing it, it will lose the creative touch. Yes. Get the source of living from somewhere else, from different field, and be creative in your arts. And I admire my father's advice and I follow, I'm following it now. And I always tell my children because they, they love music, they love arts. But guess what? They didn't pick it as an elective because they say we can learn it. They picked something else. Uh, their choices of different disciplines that they can't have a chance to learn it within themselves. I have a friend who's done music all her life and before we graduated from high school, she was set on doing something in music. She was like, that's it. And then one day she comes to school and she's like, actually guys, I'm going to go into law. And that was such a whole change. And she said, because music is my hobby and if I continue with it, it's not going to be a hobby anymore and maybe I'll grow to hate it. And seeing that shift really surprised me in a way because I wasn't expecting her to go and be like, I'm going to do law. This is perfect uh, yeah. story that you're telling me. I really yeah. like it fits with my thoughts as well because I could see some wonderful singers in the community with all my respect to all of them, but because they were materialistically driven, they lost their spark when they performed. When you start negotiating about your arts or your performance, because I don't blame them, they need to live, but they don't have other professions so they, to survive from. They need to negotiate, they have families, they need income. But for some reason, arts cannot be restricted with materialistic stuff. It was always free, I mean full of freedom, and it should always be full of freedom. So we talked about all of the, your professions and what you're doing and how you're using that for social change. Where do you see yourself with that in five years' time? Well, people with my age, I wish that I can plan for five times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm optimistic, don't mm. take me wrong, but I don't plan for too long. I, I care about future and I always encourage people to become better in their life for their own well-being and their future. But I care about today more than tomorrow. Today we are here and we can create things, we can create some change. This moment I can talk to you. But planning for too long, I don't think it's realistic because through my life I could see life changing. And honestly, I set up my goals on yearly basis and I modify them and review them every year. Life is dynamic, everything is changing. And if you want to believe me or not, a year after another one, 
my goals could change dramatically. Totally would be different directions in terms of my intentions and what do I want to achieve that year. It doesn't change my values though. No matter what happens in this life, I don't want to lose the positive values. But in terms of planning on what we're going to do for five years, it's very difficult for me to decide. But I can wish that after five years, I can see more flourishing role for newly arrived refugees through a 100% reviewed system than what's available at the moment. I don't want to be harsh with what I said, but there are many, many, many important core issues of the service delivery from different organizations, different government bodies that need to be reviewed and reconsider things that's not even in the agenda. You've talked about all throughout our interview today, some people that have inspired you growing up, whether in art or music or the profession you're doing at the moment. Who are some of those personal heroes and why do you hold them in such a high regard? To be honest, there are many people that inspired me in all of the knowledge disciplines because I studied science, I studied arts, I studied religion, I studied business. There was always people who were really creative in what they were doing on the way of they delivering the services or even how they improved the entire knowledge. If I mention one or two names, I might not be really fair with others. But through my life journey, there are many, many, many people that I admire. So the name of our podcast is Same, Same, Different. What does this mean to you? It means a lot. I like this name because you double the same, but you put one different at the end. And I like you put it at the end. Why? Because sometimes we do this similar thing for a while. And if we can see them, they're not working. For God's sake, stop and do something in a different way. (laughs) So do it differently. Just do it differently, please. Same, same. But at the end, you have to do it differently because it will be boring. It might not be fitting that generation or that change that happened in the society. So this is the meaning within my own perception for your program and I hope that I got it right. That's very interesting. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer for this. I think it's beautiful that everyone has their own perspective on what this means and their own definition of it. Otherwise, it'll be too boring. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners today? I would like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about our initiatives and The focus on the change is my aim. I also would love to hear others and their stories that I can learn from it. And yes, let's work together for better Australia. This is our wonderful country and we have a great fortune of people that we need to utilize. The disadvantaged ones that people put them in the shadow sometimes might have more power than the people in the glory. Let's give them a chance. Let's hold their hands and lift them up when we can. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. To find out more, visit wsmrc.org.au forward slash SAME. Hey, Hashi, did you know that this podcast is actually funded by the Multicultural New South Wales? No, I did not know. But did you know? I just found out. (laughs) Did you also know that Audio Technica has funded much of this podcast as well? No, I did not. Thank you so much for letting me know. Yes, and thank you, Audio Technica and Multicultural New South Wales, for helping us bring the stories of the Western Sydney to the world. Mm